If we haven't had the opportunity to meet each other in person, my name is Bob Seal, and I am the executive pastor here at Timberline Church. Timberline has been our family's church for the last 15 years. We came here the first week we moved to Colorado from Washington, D.C. My wife, Rosalyn, our three kids, Trey, Shannon, and Riley, one out of college, one in college, and one still in high school, but we're in the final stretch towards empty nesters, all right? Sad, but happy at the same time as we finish out. And um, it's... Uh, it's, it's been a joy to be on staff here. I came on staff four years ago. Pastor Derry invited me to come on staff after 25 years of working with a ministry called Young Life to reinvent the student ministry and the young adult ministry here at Timberline Church. And just in January of last year, they asked me to take a different role as an executive pastor working with the people that work with people. And But really, I'm kind of, if you know me at all, I'm kind of a big kid at heart. I still love high school kids and the people who work with them and think that they're just the greatest people in the world. We are in a series, uh, we just started last week, called What is Christianity? And this is part two of the series. And we're going to answer the question, at least attempt to answer the question, what is unique, distinct, true, essential to being Christian? And at its simplest form, What is Christianity is simply the story of God, this big God that we see maybe around us that we might not know personally. This big God and his story and his people. That this big God in in the course of human history has chosen people and their lives have intersected. And, and what is Christianity? It's essentially the story of God and his people and how they interact with one another, their relationship. And if you've studied history, if you've looked at world religions, you know inside of each human being, there's this holy curiosity about the nature of God, that each civilization, each culture has been in the search for who God is. And last week, Pastor Donnie, if you were, were here, he did a spectacular job of kind of framing out one of the things that defines who we are if we are Christ followers, Christians, what is Christianity? And he, he, he basically said we're people of the book. N- not any book, but the book, the Bible. And he began to answer some questions like, is the Bible true? Can it be trusted? Is it relevant? And is it real? He talked about the fact that it's the best-selling, most scrutinized book of all time. It's the most textually accurate, reliable piece of ancient literature by a long shot to anything else that is read in the world. It's withstood the most rigorous academic scrutiny, and it's held up through the test of time in spite of being written by 40 authors, 66 books, and it, amazingly enough, over, over a thousand year, there's a, years, there's a thread that runs from the very beginning to the very end that unites it all together, and that thread has to do with a person called the Messiah, who many of us know is the person of Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, the Christ. 
The Bible falls into a category that theologians, people who study the Bible and study study things of God, the Bible falls into a category called special revelation. And it's good to understand this category, special revelation, the term, because what it really means is specific revelation. That God revealed himself through the Bible very specifically and uniquely, miraculously. There's also another category that's called general revelation. And that's exactly what it sounds like. It's it's less specific. It is the general revealing of God. It's what God reveals of himself, this big God, in nature, in relationships, in creation that we, we see around us. That in Fort Collins, it's easy to understand what general revelation is, isn't it? You wake up and you look out and there are the foothills and there's horse tooth rock. And then at, there's sunsets in the evening and sometimes in the summer, there's red skies. I have a picture of Timberline Church, one of my first years here, and there were these double rainbows, and they actually came down right on top of the church. I've got these pictures with these rainbows coming down that general revelation would say, if we're paying attention, that God, he's an artist. He's a painter who understands colors and textures and how they work together to create something Beautiful and sometimes heart-stopping. If we look at the world around us, we know he's an engineer. If there's any engineers in the room, you're going to be excited about this. You're in good company. This big God is an engineer. The earth rotates in orbits around the sun tilted at a 23-degree tilt on its axis. And scientists say that if it was one degree, okay, remember protractors in high school? One degree, like, boop, that was like four degrees. One degree more tilt either way would make the planet uninhabitable. That's not a lot of margin for error for a planet rotating around the sun. He's ordered. Do you know that most birds, from the time they leg their egg till they hatch, hatch on a seven-day cycle? Some are seven, some are 14, some are 21, some are 28. He's a god of order. He's a physiologist, a caterpillar, all right, a caterpillar that you play with as a kid and you get on your hands. It has 228 separate muscles in its head. I don't even have that many muscles in my body, I don't think. A caterpillar has them all right around its its head. It's amazing. He's a botanist. There's 3,000 different species in one square of trees in one square mile of the Amazon. Think about that. 3,000 different. He, it's like he can't get tired of creating. He's, you know, he's like, oh, 2,999. Might, might as well do one more. He can't, he can't help himself. He's powerful to see a river with the winter runoff going down and hear the roar of the river coming down the Big Thompson or the Poudre Canyons, the oceans. He's powerful. And then how about us? The apple of his eye, the crown jewel of his creation. I mean, let's face it. We're pretty amazing. Look at the person next to you right now and go, you're amazing. How many people, the person next to you went was like, well, I know. 
Yeah, <laughs> of course I am. But we really are. In, in order for me to see one of you, 14 different functions have to happen for me to see you. And I basically can scan about 100 of us. 1,400 things are happening at one time. I can see you. I'm processing the next part of my talk that I'm going to do while my cardiovascular system is pumping blood and keeping me alive, all the while thinking about what I'm going to eat for dinner when I'm done here later tonight. That's a pretty good core processor in there, isn't it? Now, this was from a friend who is um, studying to be a doctor. He's, he's, he's in medical school right now. He's like, Bob, I was at a wedding with him. He goes, do you know that the cardiovascular system is pumping with so much pressure that if you were to puncture it, it could shoot your blood 30 feet? Now, don't try that at home. Disclaimer right there. Don't do that. And it got me to wondering who was the first person to figure that out 30 feet? Like, okay, you, number one up, 29 feet, nine inches. I mean, 30 feet. They know it can shoot blood that far. He's a HVAC guy, air conditioning, heating. Do you know your goosebumps when you get them is actually your hair follicles? popping up to the top to regulate your heat. Get that. That's amazing. God's into the details. He's creative. He's powerful. I also think he's playful. If you look around in the world, I think you can tell, you can say that God, Bob Goff in his book, Love Does, a fantastic read, easy read. He says God has a sense of whimsy. He's playful. He's funny. Kids get a sense of this. I, I, my two neighbors next door, they ran over these two little girls. And uh, my friend Delaney, she runs over and she, she's like, Bob, come here. There's a playing mantis. And I run over, and sure enough, there's a praying mantis in their lawn, and they're sitting there looking at it, and they're just staring at it for minutes, just amazed by it. And there's a playfulness, and there's a joy about it, and an amazement at this big God and what he's created. As a young kid, I knew God was kind of whimsical, kind of fun, because my friends and I, we would get together, and we would grab pine cones, and we would collect hundreds of these in the woods of Virginia, and we would pile them up in certain sections, and we'd divide into teams, and we would have pine cone wars. It's amazing. It was so good. You can't throw them very hard, but they do hurt from a short distance. And we would have these pine cone wars, and I thought that, that, that was amazing. And it didn't really hit me how amazing it was until I was walking at a young life camp in California, and my kids were with me, and we're walking through these woods around these big pine trees, and I hear something whiz by my head. And I'm like, what was that? And I turn around, and yes, the state that brought us, Arnold Schwarzenegger, he's huge brought us the pine cone. Could you imagine if we had these in Virginia? We wouldn't have thrown them. We would have just clubbed each other with them. What, what, he's a playful God. Here's a pine cone. Made a bunch of these, but let's make one really big so when it falls out a tree, it'll hurt enough, not enough to send them to the hospital, but it'll get their attention. God's a playful God. This big God has revealed himself generally to us. Romans 
120, Paul wrote this about this general revelation. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without an excuse. Paul is saying general revelation, though not specific, is sufficient to communicate the very qualities and nature of God, who he is and who his creation is. So much so that people are without excuse. Even if there wasn't a more specific, special revelation, that this would have been sufficient. It would have been enough. But the Christian message, the Christian God, the God we read about in the Bible wasn't going to leave anything up to chance when it came to us knowing him, his character, his mind, his thoughts, his feelings in particular towards us, the crown jewel of his creation. And God got specific through the Bible and he gets specific through this thread that weaves itself through the scriptures, this person, the Messiah, he gets wildly creative. He gets wildly extravagant in how he reveals himself specifically to us. And so we're people of the book. We're people of a story, the story of God, the story of his people, where it intersects. And so I want to give you a brief framework for this story, it's a, it's a simple framework. There's much more to it than this. But first, the story starts in Genesis 1 and 2 with paradise. It's Adam and Eve. And everything's the way it should be in the garden. The very start of the Bible. Our relationship with God is perfect. And it's unhindered. God is fully known and man is fully known in this relationship in paradise. And that's when it starts in the main character of the story. It's easy to think that it's us, his crown jewel, because he loves us so much. But really, the main character of all of this is God, the father himself. He's the protagonist, if you will, in literature. But then comes along in the story we see in Genesis three is the antagonist. And this is the one that opposes the, the desires, the, the, the protagonist, the main character. He gets in the way. He opposes and he tries to thwart, destroy at every chance. And we know in Genesis 3 it says that the serpent was more cunning than any other creature. And introduced into this is Satan who will oppose God and oppose his desires for his creation. And from there it goes on to what we call the fall. And this antagonist is able to take the crown jewel of God's creation, you and me, and he convinces them that God's holding out on them and that they really aren't experiencing life and creation the way it should be, and that if they would eat from this fruit, that they would be whole. And it falls, it's the fall of man. And from here, it's a bumpy road, isn't it? You see, there's high points, there's low points, and it goes on. 
the first murder, the first shame, the first lie. It's up and down. But then comes the hero. The hero is the one who's going to save. He, he breaks into the story to save that whoever's involved in the storyline from the antagonist is his desire to destroy. The hero is committed to something bigger than himself. And he's willing to sacrifice everything. And that's the message of Jesus. Jesus is the hero as he enters into a specific point in time in human history. And he saves. And then... We have reconciliation. That broken relationships, broken identity, the brokenness of the world is made right through the sacrificial act of the hero. And things begin to head upward and they're restored. And the last part of the story is redemption. And redemption in the story is simply the restoration of Back to paradise. It comes full circle. And that's God's story. That's the story of those books. Those 66 books. That's the story of the Bible. It's full of ups and downs. And in comes the hero. And then God currently is in the process of restoring you and me and the world. One time will restore in the future things to the way they originally were meant to be. That's the message. Now what's really cool is... That's built in, I believe, into our hearts. That every human in his creation understands this story. It's part of our DNA, if you will. And we see it all around us. Great storytellers follow this kind of pattern. The the last hundred years, the master storyteller to children and to adults like me, Disney. Right? Think of it. You could pick almost any Disney movie and it looks something like this, doesn't it? Right? Like, how about the Lion King? Anybody remember the Lion King? Right? It starts and, and there's Mufasa and his wife and they have a son Simba. Alright? And it starts off with the movie and the birds are flying around and they're in Africa and then you see him on top of this big cliff and, and all of a sudden the, the baby Simba's head up is like, yeah! That's just, it's paradise! Who wouldn't want to be that kid? But then there's the antagonist. Uncle Scar comes along and he begins to plot so that he can be king. Sound familiar? If you know the story, it sounds real familiar. And then he lures Simba into a place where in order for Simba to live, the father, the king, gives his life so that his son can live. And from there we know it's up and down. There's shame, and he goes into hiding. He leaves all his friends. He becomes isolated until he meets Tim, uh, Pumbaa and Timba, right? Hakuna Matata, Timon, thank you. Hakuna, I couldn't find it. I was trying. It wasn't there. Hakuna Matata, no worries. Live like that until he runs into Nala, his childhood friend who has grown up, and now there's a love interest, and love's always part of the story, isn't it? And then... Simba finds out that there's a hero within. He's made in the image of the king. Remember the monkey? I don't know if you're my favorite part. The monkey is hilarious. The baboon. And he makes him look in the water and he says, look harder. 
look harder. And then he sees the father, the image in which he's created. And then he makes a sacrificial act. And then there's reconciliation in relationships. And then at the end, what happens? They have another kid, him and Nala. They fall in love. They live happy ever after. And they hold their kid out. Every Disney movie, we respond to it. And there's something about any story where there's a hero who gives their life, whether fictitious or real. When somebody gives their life for something bigger than themselves, we're moved sometimes often to tears. It's our story. And this is the story we're looking at. And tonight we're going to focus on one part of the story. And that's the introduction of the hero. We know this story through the Bible. It tells us the story and it tells us how the hero was introduced. This introduction of the hero in theological circles is called the doctrine of the incarnation. All right. Theologians just like to make big descriptive words to sound really smart. The doctrine of the incarnation. It means the teaching. Okay. That are essential to. Christianity, the doctrine of God, this big God becoming small and becoming Human at a certain point in time in history. C.S. Lewis called this the grand miracle. C.S. Lewis was an English writer, thinker, brilliant. And here's what he wrote about what he calls the grand miracle. The central miracles asserted by Christians is the incarnation, God becoming man. They say that God became man. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. Just as every natural event is the manifestation at a particular place and moment of nature's total character, so every particular Christian miracle manifests at a particular place and moment the character and the significance of the incarnation. C.S. Lewis was saying this was the miracle of miracles, that all other miracles emanate from this one event that happened when the hero entered into our story. And last week we said, Don, to sum up Don, what Donnie taught, what, what is Christianity? We're people of the book. Tonight's theme is we are people of presence. God's presence in the world at a specific time in human history and God's continued presence presence in the world through his Holy Spirit and his people. If you're if you're a note taker and you look in your bulletin here, there's some fill in the blanks. I'm not a really good fill in the blank guy. I could miss some. I'm sorry if I do. You can I'll fill them in for you if it frustrates you at the end. But the first one, it says. The grand miracle, the big God became small and moved into the neighborhood. That this big God we see generally in creation became small and he moves into an actual neighborhood. Think about it. Who's your neighbor? Ah, that's Jesus. What's his deal? Uh, I think he's got the son of God thing going on. I'm not really sure. I mean, that's that would be crazy to have. Or what if you didn't know? And then someday you're walking down the street and you're like, oh, we used to, we used to have pine cone fights together when I was a kid. Jesus, the Messiah. 
There's three predominant texts that deal specifically with this incarnation, God becoming flesh. And they're like three different snapshots taken with three different lenses from three different angles. And each adds a little bit more to our understanding. The first one we're going to look at is John 1, which you can find in your bulletin. Uh, we're having a little trouble with the um, media tonight, so um, our slides are, are wonky, so we're not going to have them um, unless they pop up. They're working on it, but you can read on with me, John 1, 1 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Greek word is logos. It's this really rich word that has to do with, in the beginning was the creative agent of the universe. This logos, this logos is Jesus. You could just replace that here. And the word was with God, God the Father. And the word was God. He was with God. If you want to, why don't you take a, take a pen out? Just humor me. And put a box around with. This is important as we understand this idea of God, this big God becoming small. But he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. If you want to, why don't you just put a cross right next to darkness? Just put a cross, like the cross Jesus hung on, and the darkness has not overcome it. Put a little sun right now next to has not overcome it. Right there, the light shines in the darkness represents the crucifixion. That Jesus' death on the cross represented the reconciliation. It represents hope. And then darkness could not overcome it. Resurrection. John is, is setting the stage for the rest of what he's going to write for the reader as he talks about the account of the life of Jesus. And if you'll notice in verse 4, right kind of towards the end, it says, In him was life, and that life was the light of, another box, all mankind. John is starting with something that is a seismic shift in, in the history of God and his chosen people. See, up to this point in time, his chosen people had been the small, obscure nation uh, of Hebrews, the Jewish people. And he had picked one out of many nations. And, and this one didn't seem like a very specific or important one. But here it begins to shift because they were God's people. He was their God. And John lets them know there's a change. There's something afoot. There's something new. Because this light, this life was for all. This hero comes in not to save just some, but he comes in to save all. He starts, which is really interesting, John, this side of the story pre-existent, in the beginning, before anything existed, over here on the storyline, God was with God. The Son, it, it, it's part mystery, and I'll probably just leave this for Brent to explain sometime, the idea of the Trinity. You're thinking, could you explain the Trinity to me today so I can understand this better? No, I'm not going to do it. Better for Brent to do it, but it's, it's the idea that one God, three persons, Father, Son, Spirit, and this is saying the Son... And the Father were one in relationship with each other.
You go on in verse 6, it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. This is referring to John the Baptist who went before Jesus as a testimony Okay, mankind testifying to the fact that the hero has entered, that God has entered human history in a person. And we see from the very start that God's design and purpose is for his people to reveal. Remember, this will become important later. Remember, there's general, big God, and then there's special or specific revelation. And John the Baptist seems to be a small, imperfect, he's human, but special revelation of who is entering history. And from the very beginning, his creation was to testify to the entrance of the creator. And this will get a little more developed as we go on. Verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which is his own, but his own did not receive him. That's what we see playing out today. That there's those that don't recognize the truth, the power, the validity of Jesus Christ. Then comes the good news. Verse 12, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born of not natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. This is the good news. It it says here, get this, is that those who receive him, those who believe in his name. Do me a favor, another little thing, so you got notes, it'll jar your memory. Put a little box around belief. Read through John's account of the life of Jesus. Belief never has a qualifier. It never has an adjective in front of it. It never has an adverb in front or behind it. It just says belief. It's not strong belief. It's not consistent belief. It's not deep belief. It's not huge belief. It's not even little belief. It just says belief. It would seem to say that someone, let's not contextualize it, let's not quantify it, if they got little belief. The faith or trust of a mustard seed kind of belief. That God allows that person to be called children of God. In relationship with the Father. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of God, the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John's setting the stage here for what they're going to read. I love Eugene Peterson. His translation of this in the message, which is a paraphrase of verse 14. God became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. It says they knew him, they could touch him, they had conversations with him. Jesus specifically and in great detail revealed the heart, the mind, the purposes of God.
If John 1, you look at it, and we're going to look at these three snapshots, I'd say it's the wide-angle lens. It's kind of pulling back. It starts over here really big, and it zooms in a little bit, but it's the big picture. And if we were going to sum it up, okay, John 1 is called the prologue, this chapter of, of John's account of the life of Jesus. If we, if we were going to try to, let's sum it up in, in something that we can remember, it would be summarized best by the great theologian, the American theologian, Mark Twain. I'm being facetious there. Mark Twain wrote a book called The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, and somebody took The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, and he turned it into a musical. And 16 years ago, right about this time, a young man, very dear to my heart, named Trey Seal, my son, was the lead at Shepherdson Elementary in The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. And what caused him the greatest anxiety about his first role as an actor was this scene he had with Tom Sawyer's love interest, Becky Thatcher. And they sat and Tom talks to her about being engaged. And the scene ends with two things that caused great stress for him. One was a song followed by a kiss on the cheek, which at six in front of your entire school and a hundred parents is pretty unnerving. But they sang this song and it was so cute to watch them sing it. It's this little song that's entitled, I Choose You. You choose me. He looks at Becky Thatcher. He says, well, Becky, this is how it works. I choose you and then you choose me. And that's John 1, that this big God of the universe was going to leave nothing to chance. And he was going to make sure he knew that we knew who he was and how much he loved us and how we were supposed to live, that he sent his son, the hero, into history. It was as if he was saying to us, I choose you. And the smallest, I choose you too back, makes us children of the living God. That's John 1. The zoom lens passage that we're going to look at is Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And that's in your bulletin as well. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This mind he's talking about is actually have the mind of God. That's what Paul is exhorting the reader. He's saying, hey, have the mind of God, which means in Jesus, Jesus reveals the mind of God. This is profound. It's not just the acts of God that he reveals. It's the mind of God. Was anybody around town last weekend eating out and notice any homecoming people? My wife and I went out. We had taken pictures with our daughter and her friends as they went to homecoming. And we were sitting in a restaurant watching several couples and groups of high school students. And they were having conversation. And some of it was going well for some of the guys and the gals there. And some of it was pretty awkward to watch. And as I'm watching, I, I wasn't so much interested in what they were saying. I was more interested in what they were thinking. Right? And that's what this passage is a little bit like. It's not just what God's saying to us. It's what's more profound is what God is thinking about how life works, in particular our life works, and how his relationship, Jesus' relationship with the Father works. It's, it's kind of reading the thoughts of God. And he doesn't do this so we can just be pure spectators of it. When God reveals his mind, he reveals his mind so that he can transform ours. 
This is supposed to be transformative. It's supposed to change the way we think. And if we change the way we think, it then changes the way we live. That's we're zooming in here. Philippians 2. You're more excited to read it now, aren't you? Have the mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself to the cross reconciliation by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on the cross. The Greek word here in the translation isn't quite right. We struggle with English to get it right. The Greek word used here for form is morphe. Morphe, M-O-R-P-H-E, morphe means literally the essence of something that makes that thing what it is. And it's saying that Jesus had the essence, the morphe of God. Everything that makes God, God, Jesus possessed. And then it says that he takes on the human form. And again, this is not what something would look like. The Greek word for that is schema, that where we get schematic from. But he took on the morphe of man. Fully God, fully man. All that God was, its very essence, he united with humankind, all that man was supposed to be, all that man is, and, and, and that Jesus united them together in one whole with perfect integrity and lived the way that we were created to live in relationship with God. So if you're writing in your notes, number two is Jesus was fully God and fully man. And this is important for us to know because what Jesus does is he takes the physical and the spiritual and he unites them together in one whole. And if you've been at church on the past couple Sundays, you've heard Pastor Jeff talk about the big fat Greek hangover. And what that is, is that in Greek thinking, Western thinking, the thinking has been the spiritual is good of the highest value. But the physical... The carnal is really of no value. In fact, it's bad. There's an evil associated with it. And Jesus Christ in the incarnation reclaims the physical. And he brings the spiritual. He takes the physical. He unites them together in one with integrity. And he reclaims the physical so that we can... Say, as Christians, everything is spiritual. See, we know the result if when people are irreligious, maybe, and they, they worship the physical. They are, I'm going to do what I'm going to want. I'm going to satiate my desires when I want, how I want, with whomever I want. And we, we see the long-term effect of that. Maybe for some of that, us, that was part of our journey. But the opposite side of this can be just as dangerous as that and just as painful. And I would say that would be the religious at its kind of worst definition, which would mean only the spiritual is important. 
I only do spiritual things. I pray, I read my Bible, I go to church. It's almost as if that's the only thing I pay attention to. The physical has no value. In fact, it's evil. It should be feared. And therefore, I have a long list of things I should avoid doing, being, being around. Legalism comes out of this only spiritual. And it misses the needs of other, the physical needs of those in need. But Jesus comes along and reclaims it and says, no, everything's spiritual. He's fully God. He's fully man. And then look at the pattern here. The king starts in perfect relationship with the father, Jesus with the father. He comes down and lowers himself. And he says he doesn't consider his, his godliness, his position, he doesn't grasp to that anymore. In fact, he empties himself and takes the form of the servant. And what happens is when Jesus empties himself and becomes totally dependent on God, God lifts him up and exalts his name. That Jesus, by his very essence of coming down, becoming a servant, is then lifted up and glorified by God. That there's no higher position. And Jesus lived in total dependence on God the Father. The power that you see exhibited in the miracles, what he did on the cross, the strength to do that, was all given from the Father. Jesus, the Son, in dependence with the Father... Completely dependent on the Father because he'd emptied himself. Completely God, completely man. He didn't put on a Halloween costume suit. It's profound. How different is it for us? What's our story? See, we want to grasp at things, don't we? We want to be king. We want to build our resume. We want position. We would like power. We'd actually, if we were honest, would rather be served than, be the, than to be the servant. And it's the opposite. We exhaust ourselves in the pursuit of those things. And Jesus, here in this passage, Paul is saying, have the mind of Christ, which is what? Stop grasping at what you can't obtain. Stop being what you were never meant to be, king or somebody worshipped. And take on the very nature of a servant, this Jesus, that you might have a mustard seed of faith. Take on that nature and begin to serve the world around you. And if you'll do that, I will empower you and you will become famous in my kingdom. It's the what some... Scholars call the upside-down kingdom. Jesus flips it upside down here. One last snapshot to bring us home. It's from Colossians 1, 15 through 20. It's not in your bulletin, but if you were in early Hebrew or Greek or Roman hearing this, you wouldn't have been able to read it anyway. You would have heard it just like this. The Son is the visible image of the invisible God. 
the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created. You're starting to see the pictures are similar that they're painting here. All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him, by him, for him. He's before all things. And in him all things hold together. And here's the verse. This is the different angle that Paul gets out here. And he is the head of the body. More incarnation language, right? More physical language here. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have supremacy. And Paul uses this body language. He uses that Christ is the head of the body. That the church of which he's head of, the church being his people, those who believe, belief without a quantity attached to it. That we're a body together. And he goes on to say things in the scriptures like when we receive Christ, the secret to it is that Christ lives in you, Colossians 1.25. And this gives you assurance of sharing in his glory. That Check out the relationships we got going on. We start with John 1, God the Father, God the Son in perfect relationship. Big God becomes small and God becomes human and he unites the two in perfect integrity, reclaiming the physical, spiritual and physical. They're both spiritual. And then the third union that we see in here that it talks about is Christ's union with his people that you and I in Christ, when we have this belief We become his children, and when that happens, God's spirit, the spirit of Jesus, again, we'll put Brent on the hook for explaining this one. He comes into us, and God is united with us. And it'd be, we're not the incarnation. Jesus was the incarnation. And we're imperfect, and we're fallen, and we're bumped, and we're bruised. But in Christ... We're reconciled and being redeemed in our own special way. Each of us, the message is here, we are many special revelations to the world of who God is and his mind and his relationship to his people. That's more than the baby Jesus in a manger who came to die paid for our sins, and one day we get to go to heaven, isn't it? How do you feel when you wake up in the morning and look, look in the mirror? Do you wake up and go, mm, mm-hmm, feeling good? Do you wake up some days and you, you look in the mirror and you're like, seriously, God, seriously? All right, are you giving me this hair right now in, in my life so that I'm humble? Okay, I'll, I'll take humble. Do you look in the mirror? Here, here's where this, the rubber meets the road with this. Do you look in the mirror and you go into your day saying, 
I am a mini special revelation to the world of who Jesus is. Matthew 5, 5, he says, you are the light of the world. How does John's gospel start? I am the light and I've overcome darkness. And he's now Jesus is saying to us the very thing that I am, you are to this world. Now go and don't hide that light. And then he says this really crazy thing at one point. He says, you know, you're going to do greater things than I did. Well, you know, Jesus did some pretty great things. When we become dependent on God. In increasing measure. There's nothing we can't do. We're special revelations. Of this God man. Jesus Christ. So how then does this affect how we live? If you're filling in the blanks, point three is don't let your relationship with God become simply functional. Spectating versus participating. That means you're, you do a lot of God things. It's functional. It's like some marriages become at some point. You don't know when it happened, but it's functional. We get into the same routine and we love each other, but it's not the same and it's functional. It works. But that's not the way it was meant to work. And how do we know when it's functional? It's when we're spectating more than participating in what God's doing. When we're sitting and we're listening and it feels good, but we don't take what we're listening to and we don't live it out in our lives and what we're hearing doesn't begin to transform me from the inside out. And this becomes important when I understand that Jesus' words are that you are to be the ambassadors for me, the light of the world in a world full of darkness. I'm united with you. Point number four is God is present. And I must learn to be present to him as a child so that I can be present as an adult to you. See, children, they know their needs, right? They're acutely aware that they're dependent on other people and they know what their needs are. I'm hungry. I'm cold. I'm tired. They're not afraid to say them. That's what being a child is. And being a child with God is to recognize and live as if I'm totally dependent on God. I'm not grasping. I'm not trying to be the provider I was never meant to be that only God can be. That way I can be an adult with you. A mature apprentice is our language, which means somebody mature, an adult. What, What do they do? They see the needs of others. And see, if I can be with God before I go out, I'm able to see the needs of others as I serve, take on the nature of the servant. But if my relationship with God is functional, I go out and serve people so that they can meet my needs. How does that work? You ever had one of those relationships? First, I need to go up and be in this relationship with Jesus Christ. So then I can go out into the world. And be this incarnational light to the world. So I have to learn as my friend, your friend Dick Foth says, I need to learn to be a child with God so I can be an adult with you. 
And lastly, number five, we are people of presence when we creatively and purposefully waste time with others to get to the important conversations about life in God and life with God. Creatively wasting time. Look at the life of Jesus. A lot of the stuff he did was at weddings. It was along the road. It was on fishing trips. It was in storms. He did things along the way on adventures. It wasn't and rarely actually in church settings where he revealed himself and his power and his purpose in the world. And the question I have to continually ask myself is, is there enough margin in my day, in my time and agenda, the things I do, so that I can creatively and purposefully waste some time with the people that God has put into my path? Why would I do that? We'd say it's my time, is it? We're to be many special revelations to a world to reveal Jesus Christ, the hero who can change everything with just a little bit of faith. That would make me want to create margin in my life. And that's when the best conversations happen along the way, aren't they? Playing. Being playful and whimsical. And then you have a conversation. And along the way, because you're creatively wasting time with somebody, you've unintentionally or intentionally said to them, I choose you. And then by being with you, they're saying to you intentionally or unintentionally, I choose you back. And then you get to the conversation where you say, well, you know why I choose you is because he chose me. And he chooses you. And he's waiting to choose for you to choose him back. The doctrine of the incarnation where people of presence God with us, us united with God in Christ, and us present in the world as his ambassadors. The grand miracle, as C.S. Lewis says, and it means everything. I'd like you to take just a minute. We covered a lot of ground, didn't we? A lot of different thoughts, a lot of different vignettes or pictures. My guess, though, if you're like me, when I sit where you do, which is where I sit most of the time, is that one thing stood out to you. Maybe two, but there's one that maybe stood out to you more. And I would suggest to you that that's maybe God speaking something to you tonight. I'm going to play some music. And I want you to prayerfully write down what's that one thing that's jumped out to you. What's God telling me about himself in that one thing? What's God telling me about myself from that one thing? And what does God want me to do? And then I'm going to pray for us. And you're going to head back to communion or up front to communion. And you're just going to grab the elements. And you're going to take them in response to what you've heard 
and hopefully taken in tonight. So write that thing down. We'll give you a couple minutes to do that. I'll pray. Come up and grab communion. And then we'll pray together to end the evening. pray to come up and get communion. Take the elements on your own and I'll pray to end our time. Jesus, take all these thoughts, these little vignettes and reveal one thing to us. Take whatever that is and screw it down into the depths of our heart that we might be transformed, that we might be made more into your image, that we might be a light in the darkness of the world around us. As we take communion, we're reminded of your death on the cross, which reconciled us to you. And your resurrection, which redeems the brokennesses of our lives and it completes the good work that you've started in our soul. Remind us of your love.